You're listening to Spoonie Tea Time, where we talk about faith, books, and chronic illness. I'm Holly Conklin. I was diagnosed with arthritis shortly after graduating university, and this radically shaped my life, my faith, and my way of interacting with the world. Join me for a glimpse into the life of the chronically ill. Happy August, everyone! I always feel accomplished when a new month starts. It's like, yes, I got through another one and I am that much closer to the end goal, whatever that is. Although in this case, it also feels a little scary because I'm like, oh my goodness, half the summer is gone and I feel like I haven't done anything, which is a lie. I have done stuff, but I have a lot of other stuff I wanted to do, and I'm starting to think that's not going to happen this season, but whatever, there's always other summers, and I guess a lot of what I want to do I can do in the fall as well. But here in beautiful British Columbia, we have been lifting a lot of our restrictions. It's kind of a weird mix. I don't know, some places you go and there's actually no restrictions anymore on religious stuff, but then you go other places and they're still like, masks up, like three layers of plexiglass, can't touch anything. So I don't know. I feel like things are chilling out a lot now and we've been allowed to travel again. Yay. I'm legally allowed to visit family. What? So I did that. Got on a ferry and spent a couple weeks on the mainland. I live on an island if I haven't mentioned that already. And it was really good seeing everyone. Super tiring though because I'm, you know, not doing so well health-wise, but I have a lot of very supportive people in my life, so it made it possible to go traveling without completely throwing out all my health stuff, and so I was able to eat properly, even exercise a tiny bit, but not as much as I probably should have, but whatever, it's vacation. But it is good to be back, although now I feel like I have to do all this work, and I'm lazy, and ugh. This is kind of an annoying part of the process of getting better, I feel like. You know, I'm finally able to do a few things, but it's really hard to do the few things, and now I constantly feel like I should be doing more. I guess I need another balance. Did I mention I kind of suck at work-life balance? Well, one day I'll get a little better, eh? Thankfully, some things still count as both work and fun, such as reading, which I kind of count as being productive, but I also enjoy it. Speaking of, let's talk about a book. I am not going to lie, I'm a little nervous about this book time segment. It's about an odd and difficult book that I don't fully understand, and I don't want to give you misinformation, but I also want to talk about it, so I'm going to do my best and feel free to look up anything that I talk about if you think it sounds weird or want to know more information. I just finished First Enoch, which might sound familiar, but... Chances are most of you won't be very familiar with that work, and that's because it's fairly obscure in the Western world anyway. Although I like to think gaining some popularity. First Enoch is a piece of Second Temple literature, which refers to the time period in which the Second Jewish Temple was still standing, which would have been uh, about 515 BC to 70 AD. So my understanding is it's this body of Jewish Christian type literature written in the centuries right before Christ and also for a little bit right after Christ. 
To my knowledge, a lot of this stuff isn't necessarily theologically good, but these kinds of works were the stuff floating around at the time when the New Testament was written, so they definitely shaped how the New Testament writers saw the world and understood who Christ was and how the original recipients of those early church letters would have received them and understood them. So if you're a serious biblical scholar and genuinely want to understand the context in which these letters were written and how they were interpreted in the day, then you really should be considering these kinds of works, especially First Enoch. If you're thinking that sounds familiar, it's probably because Enoch is mentioned in the Bible in a fun little passage in Genesis 5. There's only a few verses that mention Enoch, so I'm going to read most of them. So in Genesis 5.18, we hear about Enoch being born to Jared, and then it goes on to say in Genesis 5.21, When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. And that's it. That's all we know of Enoch from scriptures so far as I can gather. But he, even though had a very small part in scriptures in terms of how much we talk about him, he was a notable figure because if you didn't notice, he just vanishes. He doesn't die. And this happens super early on in Genesis, so he's only like six generations away from Adam himself, and he's also, I think, the great-grandfather of Noah. The Book of Enoch was written much later, in somewhere around 2nd century BC to 1st century AD, and the book kind of co-ops Enoch's name to retell some parts of scripture from the perspective of someone who has a unique position in being not actually dead. My understanding is that Enoch was thought to have a special place in, I guess, the afterlife where he had a different view of things because, again, he didn't die like a normal person. He just got taken up. So the book retells some of these earlier Old Testament stories from this perspective of you know, being kind of in the afterlife, but in a weird place in the afterlife. So we get his perspective on things like the flood and what's going on in the spiritual realm as well. So you get this talk of what the demons are doing this whole early Old Testament time and how they're the ones training men to be more technologically advanced, which in this case is, it's interesting. I think in most pagan cultures, it's seen as a very good thing when the humans kind of steal technology from the gods and they're like, yes, now we have fire or what have you. But in Enoch, the reverse seems to be true where it's the gods, the pagan ones, in other words, the demons who are coming and spreading these technologies to the people, not for their benefit, but so that they can kill each other more effectively, essentially. Boy, is it a weird book. It's what's referred to as apocalyptic literature, which is the same kind of genre as Revelation. So you can imagine Revelation is quite odd, but we're kind of used to it if you've been in the church for a while. 
Well, Enoch is that style where we see Enoch being taken and shown visions by angels and seeing angels and demons and the afterlife and all sorts of really interesting, fascinating things. Frankly, a lot of it went straight over my head, hence being a little nervous to talk about it, but I think it is a good one to discuss, even if maybe not everyone should be reading it at this point because it's gonna seem weird. So why did I read it? Well, I've mentioned the Lord of Spirits podcast before a few times because I love it and I think it's doing very important work. And that podcast is all about exploring the unseen realities of the world, angels and demons and so on. And in their discussions, they're definitely staying true to scriptures, but in reference to how these cultures actually understood what they were hearing from the Bible. So they reference a lot of Second Temple text, hence being interested in that genre in general, and specifically First Enoch. In fact, the title of the podcast, Lord of Spirits, comes from First Enoch, in which they constantly reference God as being the Lord of Spirits. And this isn't arbitrary. Perhaps a lot of Second Temple literature wasn't the greatest theologically, but First Enoch is special in that it very obviously shaped the New Testament. Jude quotes it directly, but a lot of the other books have very clear references to it. My commentary I have on Enoch reads that it influenced Matthew, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st Timothy, Hebrews, 1st John, Jude, which it quotes it directly, and Revelation with numerous points of contact. There is little doubt that 1st Enoch was influential in molding New Testament doctrines concerning the nature of the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Messianic Kingdom, demonology, the future, resurrection, final judgment, the whole eschatological theater, and symbolism. So yeah, not arbitrary. It influenced the New Testament. In fact, the author I just read wrote that it molded the New Testament, and church fathers for centuries after that continued to reference it and highly regarded it. So yeah, the book may be a little different than what I'm used to, and it may challenge how I viewed the world up till now and viewed scriptures, but if the apostles can reference it to understand things like the afterlife and the end times and the nature of angels and demons, then... I should be allowed to as well. So why don't we talk more about First Enoch if it's that important and that influential? My understanding is that there have been translation issues where not everyone had access to the text in their language. For example, Augustine of Hippo, who lived in the 4th century, spoke Latin. And from what I gather, First Enoch, along with a lot of other texts, were not translated into Latin at that time. So when he was writing all his theological books and whatnot, he wouldn't have been able to reference First Enoch and a bunch of other books, which I'm thinking probably really shaped his theology because he just didn't have access to the same materials as a lot of the Eastern thinkers, which is very significant because Augustine shaped so much of Western theology, both Roman Catholicism and then later Protestantism. So from what I read, even though a lot of the earliest church fathers and writers, including the apostles, talked about First Enoch, 
that started falling out of favor around the 4th century, around Augustine's time. At least in the Western world, there was always a bit of a geographic and theological split between East and West, between Greek and Latin, generally speaking. And we mostly stopped talking about this book until I think fairly recently when we've been getting better translations and people have been doing more digging into these texts to try and understand what was going on back then. All that to say, I read a pretty weird book that was super influential back in the day, Lost Favor. We now seldom talk about it so that it's so odd reading it. It's just so different from what we're used to talking about. But that's why I liked it. I want to get closer to the truth. And I think maybe, yeah, it was hard for me to get through and I didn't understand a lot of it. But I think I'm slowly starting to grasp things and understand things a bit better and in a new way and in a way that I think is a lot healthier and truthful than where I was at before. So if any of that sounds interesting, which I hope it does, maybe don't go and read First Enoch just yet. Put that aside for a little bit and go listen to Lord of Spirits, which I'm going to continue trying to get people to listen to because, again, I think it's really important stuff. And I know it's helped me understand the beauty of Christianity to a far deeper extent, and I want that for other people too. I've been wanting to rant about science for a long time now, and I think that time might be here. Not just science, though. I wanted to talk about knowledge in general. It's something I've been thinking a lot about, and it seems to tie in with what I was talking about last episode. I started talking about how our culture tends to have a bit of a fixation of mind over other aspects of the human person, and in particular, we tend to really like the rational mind. We live in an age of science, which I think has become increasingly obvious with the pandemic, where everyone's like, follow the science, often in like capital letters, and you know, we like our science, which to a degree is fair. Science is useful, and it's interesting, and it can help give us an appreciation for God. I have experienced all of these things. But as with anything that's not God, it's not something to be put on a pedestal, and it's very easy to treat it with an imbalanced appreciation. And I think that kind of imbalanced way of viewing knowledge affects us in more ways than we know, even if we're not, like, actually actively thinking about science all the time. We can easily fall victim to idolizing knowledge in other ways that affects many aspects of our lives. I mentioned earlier in the episode how in First Enoch we see kind of a reverse of what pagan cultures were saying about technology, where pagan cultures at the time were all about, yes, we have fire, we can make things, we have metallurgy, all this stuff, and we're, you know, excited about it, use it to kill a bunch of people, yay, humanity. Whereas the more classic Judeo-Christian understanding was that, you know, demons gave us these technologies and it wasn't a good thing at the time. There's this sense within Christianity that while knowledge is fine and dandy, taken out of context in the wrong way before we are ready, it can be extremely dangerous for our bodies as well as our souls. Some people might even say that all human brokenness stems from grasping knowledge before we are ready. And in fact, I believe that's the traditional Christian understanding of what happened in the Garden of Eden. 
I believe the classic understanding is that, you know, God put this tree in the garden for a reason. Adam and Eve were meant to eventually eat from the fruit, but they weren't ready yet. They had maturing to do. So you could argue that humanity's downfall stemmed from this striving for knowledge before we are ready. Adam and Eve thought that they would become like God if they just had more knowledge and that temptation was too much for them, so they ate the fruit before they were ready. And thus, we now have sin and death and darkness and everything bad. And that same temptation that first confronted Adam and Eve has continued to confront humanity right up until these times where we still think that if we just get a little bit smarter, we can solve all of life's problems. And scientists talk like this all the time. You know, in order to achieve immortality or something close to it, we got to do all these medical procedures and advance our medical science to the point where we become indestructible. And if we want to fix the planet, we got to use science to reduce carbon emissions or whatever else they're focusing on these days. And if you want people to do what you want them to do, then you got to use science, you got to use psychology to figure out marketing strategies or figure out better drugs to solve all their problems or whatever the goal is. And obviously these things aren't inherently bad. I'm all for advancing medical science and, you know, improving recycling techniques or what have you. But I think we've become completely imbalanced. You know, like, there is actually a solution to the death problem, and that is Christ. He defeated death. He is the only way we can achieve immortality. And the whole climate change problem isn't inherently a scientific problem. It's a problem of the heart. It's our problems with greed and gluttony and laziness. As cool as technology is, I think it can become a problem when it starts to blind us and distract us from what's actually going on in our hearts. The irony is that this struggle for knowledge actually becomes the thing that keeps us from true knowledge. There's this pattern within Christianity and the scriptures of the downtrodden, illiterate people making fools out of the wise. And I think part of the reason that is, is because true knowledge comes from a relationship with Christ, who is the truth. And you can't have that if you're blinded by pride. The way we connect with Christ is by humbling ourselves before him. But we can't do that if we think we're all that because we know some sciencey things. One of my favorite examples of this is St. Anthony of Egypt, who's, you know, kind of regarded as the father of monasticism by many. And I believe he was a 4th century monk, and he was illiterate. He had no theological training, but when he heard the scripture reading in church one day that, you know, Christ told the man, if you want to be saved, you got to sell everything you have and give it to the poor, he actually did that. He sold everything he had, he went into the desert, and there he lived a life of fasting and prayer, where he actively spent his days trying to connect with God. Despite being conventionally dumb, I guess you could say, you know, he was uneducated, couldn't even read, couldn't even read the scriptures, he still became one of the most famous Christians of the time, where people would travel from around the world just to hear what he had to say, because what he said was so profound. Which is interesting, because as he was illiterate, he couldn't even read the scriptures, which today we kind of consider the be-all, end-all of how we get to know God. 
but it's clear from Anthony's life that that's not necessarily the case. The Bible is super important, and Anthony definitely had some kind of connection with it. He would have heard it read in church, as demonstrated by the fact that he got up, sold all his stuff, and went to the desert, based off the Bible. But he simply wasn't capable of doing this in-depth scholarly analysis of the text. What he had, though, was a willingness to put what he heard into practice and to pursue God with his entire being. And that, I think, is what enabled him to become such an influential figure who still continues to influence people to this day. I mean, I've been reading about his life and some of the things he said, and it means something to me. And I found that super interesting because I've lived my life being kind of the opposite, where I've been all about the scholarly analysis, and I love that kind of stuff. I nerd out on it. But as I've been getting older, I've been learning more and more that while there's definitely a place for that kind of analysis of the Bible, it's not the primary way I understand it. I understand it primarily by putting it into practice, by living it out and trusting God. A good example of that is like that verse I mentioned a few episodes back about how, you know, we're supposed to take joy in our suffering. That's not something I'm going to understand from any amount of scholarly analysis. That's something I have to learn by living it. Perhaps the best way I've heard it put comes from St. Athanasius the Great, who happens to have been a contemporary of St. Anthony and I think a good friend of his. And he said, One cannot possibly understand the teaching of the saints unless one has a pure mind and is trying to imitate their life. What a different way of viewing understanding, though, that understanding isn't about, you know, rationalizing everything and trying to figure it out logically. Understanding is about living it and cultivating purity in your heart and praying. And that's how we ultimately learn what the Bible means. Some of this academic stuff can help, but it's not the main thing. I think this is important also to keep in mind when choosing people to listen to. We live in a day and age where we can find a scholar to back up pretty much any position we want, which leads to a lot of confusion. You know, I've flat out had friends tell me that they don't read the Bible anymore because they don't know what to believe because so many people are saying so many different things about it, which is a little heartbreaking, but I also kind of get it. It is confusing, but it helps having a personal connection with someone because then you can see how they're actually living it out. You know, there's a lot of people who know a ton of stuff about scriptures, but you look at their life and they're not filled with like joy and hope and love of God. They're filled with pompous pride at, ooh, look at me, I know ancient Greek or what have you. But we want to be listening to people who actually love God. And when someone loves God, you can tell they love God, you know? They can't just say it. They can't just, like, you know, spit theological facts at you. They have to be living it out. And I think when they're doing that, they're a lot more likely to be telling you smart things than someone who's had maybe more experience in the academic analysis of theology, but hasn't been living it out. This is a very important thing that I need to keep reminding myself because I know I have a tendency to idolize rationalism and to think that logic is the be-all, end-all. And so I can get a little flustered when some smart person says something. I'm like, what? But they're smart. They must be right. 
As I get older, though, I'm learning more and more that just because someone has sounder arguments than I do or seems smarter, has more facts or what have you, that doesn't make them actually knowledgeable. There are some very scientifically intelligent people who are completely off their rocker when it comes to life, (laughs) you know, and I don't need to be flustered by them. I know some things to be true and there's a time to stand by that even if I can't logically argue it. The reality is that in the grand scheme of things, it's not your scientific or rational intellect that determines how knowledgeable or wise you are. Someone like St. Anthony of Egypt, totally illiterate, doesn't know a scrap of science, could dance circles around someone like Richard Dawkins on anything that means anything. And he would do so with so much more humility and gentleness and joy and peace. And I would far, far prefer to be like that, to be someone who's humble, who's joyous, who's loving, and who might not be incredibly smart in the sciences, but has such a solid knowledge or understanding in who Christ is, and just loves him for it. And I think if I became more like that, it would be so much easier to read scriptures and to just understand it without having to do um, in-depth dives into all the cultural, historical backgrounds of every verse that I'm reading, even if I still think that stuff is fun and useful. So by all means, let's pursue academics and learn stuff and get all sciencey and smart and all that, but let's, you know, first start with a foundation of humility and love of God and truth and beauty, because that's ultimately where we get true knowledge from, And it's also what protects us as we do go forward and learn more. It protects us from destroying ourselves, whether through pride or literally destroying ourselves by creating, you know, death weapons and destroying everything. I think when we are solidly in Christ, then it kind of sanctifies any scientific discoveries we do make. And, you know, we can use that better to honor God and bless humanity rather than destroy everyone. That's the theory anyway, but I don't think many of us are very good at that. I'm definitely got some growing to do in that area. And that's all for today. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear and want to support more content like this, you can do so financially at buymeacoffee.com slash time. You can also help out by giving us a rating and a review on iTunes or your chosen podcast platform. Until next time, rest hard and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day.